Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, episode number 76 with Michael Horn. He's the author and co-author of multiple books. You can see a couple of them behind him, white papers and articles on education, including the award-winning book, Disrupting Class, How Disruptive Innovation Will Change the Way the World Learns, a book that I think everyone should read as it describes how disruptive technologies will personalize and revolutionize learning. You can see that book right behind him on his bookshelf. He also wrote the Amazon bestseller Blended that you can see also behind him, using disruptive innovation to improve schools. And the most recent book, Choosing College, How to Make Better Learning Decisions Throughout Your Life, that was written to help students and parents stay ahead of the curve as they make important college decisions. Welcome, Michael. It was so much fun to hear your reaction to some of my questions that dig back to 2016. Thanks so much for well, being here. Yeah, it's a delight to be with you. And it's funny how 2016, I think in ordinary times feels like a little while ago, but in today's times where every day feels like a week, right? It feels like ages ago. It sure does. It really does. Michael, I'm just going to take you back to that because I first saw you speak then. It was at the ASU GSB Summit and it was the San Diego one. Um, our company was actually nominated for the McGraw-Hill Innovation Award. So that's why I wanted to look at the speakers and learn from everyone there. And I had young kids at the time, so I couldn't go to the event. I was thrilled when it was actually streaming. So I was able to take notes from here in my office and feel like I was a part of the event. And I just was laughing because the title of my notes was aha moments from the eyes of a disruptor. So I completely must've been reading disrupting class to have titled my notes that way. But um, it was from this event that I learned about disruptive ed tech companies like Class Dojo, and there was Clever and Remind, and these guys were all skyrocketing their online services within the school market. And now most people have these apps on their phones and that we should know about these apps at this point. And so I knew that this conference was one that I needed to stay connected to and learn from the speakers with you being one of them to stay at the forefront of education. And things really have changed since 2016, haven't they? Have, have they ever? I mean, gosh, who, who would have predicted the turmoil that we've been thrust into as a society, the pain for so many families? But I also think the silver lining, right? An opportunity to really rethink how we've done education and hopefully better serve uh, all individuals, many of whom were not being served well before this hit. Exactly. That's what the point of disrupting is, isn't it? Is to start anew. Yeah, I, you know, look, yeah, I mean, look, technically, right, disruption now has taken uh, into all sorts of meanings and definitions, depending on what people want to twist it to mean. But when we originally uh, talked about the concept of disruptive innovation, we, we basically mean serving people who are not served uh, by the existing system, who have gaps, who can't, uh, because of wealth or expertise, uh, access the existing offerings that are there. And if you look at the level of the classroom uh, in, in American education, uh, so many millions of students, largely uh, because of their uh, uh, background, where they live, their wealth, uh, if they're in a rural environment, for example, they are disconnected from so much opportunity. And it actually creates a lot of opportunity for disruptive innovation to really radically transform uh, the American education system. 
Definitely. Now, I'm just curious what's happening with that conference now. I haven't been following it as closely. They're doing a lot of online stuff still. Are you still connected? I am still connected. I uh, was going to speak there uh, this past April. It got canceled uh, and it went, they did a remote version where they did uh, every week. They, they brought a, a couple panels and I participated in one of them, which was uh, as fun as anything could be on virtual. And uh, they, uh, you know, they're, they're looking to do more in the fall, I know. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly have to continue rescheduling, obviously, the conference. But uh, they're 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 doing their best right now to you know continue to connect people. I think, and they're they're doing a good job of it even in these times. Oh, absolutely! I was blown away by what I saw by back then, and it it just made me think. I've been following you ever since then, and when you sent out an email, it actually had the subject matter why developing character in schools matters. And it was at that point that I thought it's time that I just reach out to you. And, and I didn't even know at the time that you had a podcast that it makes sense for me to share that with everyone here. It's the same audience, the same uh, mission, I think, is just to educate people on what we can do differently during these times and have a positive angle on it. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And and I was glad you did reach out because that that uh, that e-blast I sent out obviously was about that podcast, Class Disrupted, and uh, the importance of not just thinking about schools narrowly, right, uh, as just developing academic proficiencies and things like that, but thinking about the whole child and, and, and the importance of character and social emotional learning and habits of success as well as you consider that development. Absolutely. Well, Michael, I have so many questions because I know your background goes to K-12 as well as the higher ed market. So I'm going to kind of mix up some of the questions. But sure. what I, when I found that, that podcast class disrupted that you started when the coronavirus pandemic disrupted education and changed everything that we as parents, teachers and workers know about what it means to go to school. I listened to some of the episodes and I just loved it. Uh, my favorite one was the one that you said, why can't SalCon just teach everyone? And seriously, because doing some of these homeschooling math lessons, I go to my phone and I look up something and there's SalCon. I'm like, can't I just put SalCon? That, that just really made me laugh. But can you give an overview of your podcast with your visions? Listeners can just go check it out and stay connected to your content. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the basic premise was that, as you said, class and schools have totally changed right now. And I would say for the first time, parents were getting a real inside peek at what goes on behind the closed uh, doors during the school day. And they were having a lot of questions, right? They were asking, why are there so many worksheets still? And then they would say, wait, we have connection to internet, but you mean millions and millions of kids don't? Like, what, what, what's that about, right? And, or uh, in some cases, all these districts went uh, to straight A's for all students or pass-fail grades, and parents were saying, what's up with that? And so we basically said, parents have all these really important questions that they're seeing up close, and they don't make sense to them right now, but they don't make sense actually in general. So we wanted to use those questions as a window to sort of break open people's thinking about what schooling should look like even in quote unquote normal times, and how do we use this opportunity as, as a chance to build bridges uh, into the future that benefits way more students? And the, the, the one other thing I'll say is, you know, midway through the podcast, obviously there was the George Floyd uh, uh, homicide and, uh, you know, the outbreak, right, of, of this conversation, national conversation around race and so forth. And so equity is certainly a part of the podcast, but the big point we make 
is that the system actually doesn't serve anyone well. <laughs> it doesn't matter whether you're a white person with a lot of income, black person with a lot of income, black person, low income, white person, low income. It's not built to serve anyone. And we can create a much more equitable system. That's what we've started to call positive sum, that it actually benefits all of us. And I, I think that's a really important concept that rides throughout the entire podcast. Absolutely. And I, I found that even me doing these podcasts with educators, you've got to address the issues that are happening. It just, you have to bring them out because the more that we can have discussion around it, the more awareness there is and the more we can make change in the future. So I, I love that you've done that with, with yours as well. And can I take you back to that 2016 ASU GSP? Let's do it. Even though I was here in Arizona and you were out in San Diego and it was the one where Bill Gates, he was the keynote speaker and you know, the good old days in education. I just remember things were <laughs> running so smoothly and I thought it was rough back then. Cause when I know you've got two girls at home that are age five, when they're younger, it's, it's so much more difficult. They, they don't listen to everything you say, especially when you're in your office doing podcasts or recording, they, they come in and out. So I, I know what that's like. But um, it just was crazy for me to think back then that Class Dojo was only founded nine years ago and Coursera eight years ago. The Remind app back then was only in 50% of public schools and I'm sure they're in all of them now. It just really made me think about everything that you guys were talking about at that summit. And that, remember that Moore's Law, uh, Gordon Moore, the Intel co-founder, he created this law where he talked about computing power will double every two years. So what advice would you have for schools, teachers, or parents that were not ready for this wave of online education, this doubling of technology that we seem to be having to get used to really fast now? Yeah, I, I think I'd say two things. I mean, one, just to point out the obvious, uh, those districts that had experience with technology and had purposely used it before did better, right, in the shift to remote learning than those districts who had comparatively less expertise and experience uh, with technological tools, one-to-one -one devices and, 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 and the like. Uh, the second thing I would say, though, for educators who are now trying to figure out what to do the big headline is technology is, is, is a tool and it's just that it's a tool and, and, and tools are terrible masters, but they're wonderful servants. And so the key is you need to understand what are the sets of experiences I'm trying to create for my students? What are the objectives and goals that I have of them, of an individual lesson, of the arc of a week, a month, a year? And how do I harness these tools? to create those really robust experiences. And it's almost never gonna be replicating the classroom as it was because the classroom as it was was not a particularly great teaching and learning experience uh, for either the teachers or the students, frankly. And so how do you use it starting with these first principles of what am I trying to accomplish to plug in the technology really as your tools to figure out what do you want to accomplish uh, with your students and, and honestly, enable your students to drive a lot of that learning too. I, I often think of public education as this like giant ship and we told the three and a half million teachers, just, you know, row harder, right? You all have an oar, row harder. Well, what would happen if we gave each of the kids an oar as well and allowed them to row? And, and technology affords students a lot more opportunity to take ownership and control uh, over the time, place, path, pace that they're learning. And 
that's an unbelievable force multiplier for, for a teacher and an administrator crafting these solutions. So those are the big messages that I'd, I'd encourage people to think about um, as technology comes in. Last thing I'll say, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Just because you're moving to technology or online learning doesn't mean you have to create the lesson or move your lesson over to an online medium. There are so many good organizations, companies, nonprofits, and the like that have teams of teachers and instructional designers and researchers that have been working together. I mean, yes, to your point, it's only eight, nine years, but it's still eight, nine years of experience creating really robust uh, applications that you obviously are extremely familiar with. like use those, right? And, and, and think of teaching as a team sport, not an individual endeavor. Absolutely. And I also came from Pearson Digital. We had Pearson, a whole division of Pearson Education that was online tools. And, and this is about 2009 that I was there. And that division went under because it just, it, the, some of the, the products went in and did well in the schools, but it just didn't seem that it was the right time. And I just wish that division was there now because we were saying all these things back then, you know, um, individualized learning for each student and just make sure that the students sit there and they don't have to be an hour or two hours online, just a little bit of learning a day. How, how much, I'm just curious, do you put your girls on a computer? How, That's a how great long question. do you learning? Yeah, it's a great question. It's shifted, I will tell you, uh, during this moment. Um, but but typically, uh, we let them have their. They they each have their own uh, Amazon Kindle Fire, uh, right. and they, uh, they 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 basically can get on it two to three times a week um, for I don't know thirty forty minutes at max, um, where they typically are doing Khan Academy Kids or something like that. And and I will say the coolest thing about that app hasn't been the math learning or anything like that that they've gotten from it, but more the opportunity for them to create through it um, has been really neat to see their expression through the app. Um, so that's that's been a large part of it. And then what we'll do is we'll tend to watch some videos together um, where uh, on Tuesday, for example, that's my day with the kids, um, where, where we were looking at the uh, origins of the Roman Empire because they had been reading a book that had all, had all these references to Rome and they were like, what is this thing? So we watched three or four or five minute videos, right? And then talked about it and then they did a presentation for my wife that evening. Um, and then I guess the, the third thing I would say is um, uh, in, in terms of the technology, you know, they're taking some Zoom classes, right? They have a Zoom dance class um, that's once a week. They have a couple things like that and some FaceTime uh, with family and friends, because I think one of the most important things during this pandemic that we can teach kids is how to stay in touch with one another in really trying times. Um, and so that's something we're trying to use and model is writing letters, uh, using technology to connect and things like that, because we still are social beings. And, and so that's how we think about it. To your point, it's not a lot of technology usage, but we're trying to be really intentional about it. Oh, I love it. I wondered what you were doing because it's, you, you never know what what are other people doing with with their children at this time and and thinking about the hours of time that they were in school sometimes i feel guilty that i'm not <laughs> matching that but it's okay if you know even if i can get an hour with my girls i feel like that's that's plenty it doesn't need I think to be that's yeah i think that's right and and one of the big observations in the class disrupted podcast we had was that when you do all of your work and all of your learning it often only takes students like two hours to do what 
was accomplished in a six hour day. And I, I guess I think you, you realize that the, the bang for the buck, if you will, the, like, the, you know, you spending an hour with your kids, right? Actually is probably like three or four hours in school time. Um, and just the leverage there, I think, because of the individual attention, the conversation, the active learning experience that it is, is you, you know, when we were watching the Rome videos, we were literally pausing every 20 seconds to talk about something, right? Like this was not a sit and deliver sort of me get excited about the three videos I'd found, right? It was like a very interactive experience. And the research is so clear that passive learning doesn't produce outcomes, active learning does. And so I, I, I suspect when parents, if you spend an hour or so and then give your kids a lot of free time to do what they wanna do, that's actually really productive. Absolutely. I love it. And it takes the guilt out of all of this because yes. I was feeling in the beginning, I was, everyone's was asking, how's it going for you over there? And I'm thinking it's not going well at all. And I'm just being <laughs> honest about it because, you know, people think, well, you guys have all these tools. And then I think about the people that don't have the tools. Like we have all this, we've got math online and forget about Khan Academy. We have digital pathways for our students for math and reading. And still, I thought I, I could have been doing a better job with them with a teaching background and, and just time. It just each day, suddenly the day's over and you think, oh, we've missed something. <laughs> but just to take the pressure off, it's OK. I think that's right. And, you know, the other thing you realize, right, is that schooling is happening constantly in some in some weird way now and, and yeah. or, or learning, I should say, is happening constantly yeah. in a way we're more cognizant of. So to your point, you know you all have some incredible apps that allow these individualized, effectively, right, um, leveled plans uh, for, for, for children and, and progressions and the like. Um, but also, you know, when your kids are cooking with you, you know, make dinner, right? Um, like, then you, you all of a sudden ask the silly question, well, what if we doubled this? What would that do to the proportions, right? Like, I'm not using that word with my five-year-olds, but the right, concept, right. I, I, I'm, I'm certainly am. And uh, the funniest has been that they've kicked me out of the kitchen a couple of times and like made some very interesting cake uh, creations yeah. and you know, like they're learning, right. Then we get right. to reflect about it. Like, what would you do differently next time? Okay. Add X and Y. And like, they're starting to think through Definitely. all of these things and explore that I think is pretty neat. And, and I guess that's the other thing I'd say for parents and educators is you don't have to do the same thing for every single family. Like we all have different sets of resources and, and questions and, and context that's relevant in each of our houses. Figure out how to harness the home environment because that's your classroom now uh, to, mm -hmm. to, to maximize uh, that exploration and learning and reflection. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And then it gives us all the ability to just take, take a breath and say, we're doing okay. Because <laughs> right. Right gosh, we need it. Gosh, exactly. we need it. Yeah, exactly. So I also saw, uh, I want to just switch over to higher ed right now. I saw your sure. article. It was changes ahead in higher ed and the experts weigh in. And I wonder what other changes you're seeing for 2020, 2021 school year that go beyond COVID-19 testing, online learning challenges, you talked a little bit about sports teams that were being eliminated and whether campuses will reopen. Can you just talk about that a bit more? Yeah, yeah. I was flattered that they used the word experts in the headline. But the uh, but I'll say, uh, you know, I, I think even for those schools that do have on-campus learning, it's not just 
whole sports seasons that I suspect will end up being canceled. I, you know, some schools have tried to limit football and things like that to uh, in conference and stuff like that. I, I kind of think that we're going to see more cancellations uh, in, in the weeks uh, ahead. Second though, you know, I, I, I suspect a lot of people haven't thought about this intramural sports, the random games of Frisbee and things like that. Those are going to have huge implications as well. And that really is going to impact health and wellness, right, of a lot of these students uh, on, on campus and the like. You know, the party's experience in terms of residential, there's going to be big crackdowns on that. There's going to be big questions around honor code and how do you police that as a school? Uh, I, th I think, we, you know, we, we haven't seen all the guidance on that. There could be some civil rights uh, or, or Title IX implications uh, of some of that, depending on how that you know, manifests itself. That could get the Department of Education involved. Uh, I think the other piece of this that uh, you're going to see is that a lot of colleges uh, are, aren't going to be able to fill seats or, or, or be able to bring in the tuition uh, that they had expected. So I think you'll see a lot of campuses close or merge uh, or make draconian cuts uh, of whole departments and things of that nature uh, over the next 12 months. And so, uh, you know, I, I'd encourage folks that, that are sort of thinking is my, is my children's uh, school, you know, maybe on the chopping block. There are resources out there like Edmit and others that have created effectively dashboards that tell you is a school sort of uh, in, in the danger zone or not in the next three to five years. And, and, and I'd be mindful of that because I think some schools won't make it. Some programs won't make it. And if your child uh, is in one of those, that can be really hard uh, to recover from. Right. And so what are some proactive things we can do if we have kids you know, even at that stage, keeping an eye on your, the college they've applied to, what, what else could they be thinking about? Yeah, I think they should be thinking very critically about what's the actual experience we want uh, for the upcoming year. Because I think it's more likely than not that a lot of schools, we're already seeing it right now, schools increasingly are going to more and more remote uh, uh, learning. They're moving back from their all-in-person experiences that they boldly uh, said that they would launch on. And so I think you should say, if that happens, you know, what do I want the next six months to look like for, for, for my child or as, as the student, you know, what do I want my next six months to look like? And be super clear about maybe if, if this is going to be online anyway, do I look for an online university that's been doing this for at least a decade that has a lot of experience? And by the way, costs a heck, a heck of a lot less money because the other piece of this is that most colleges outside of the elite ones are not in a position to give more discounts, even if they move to an online format. And the professors and, and colleges say, well, we're still giving you the education. You're still going to get the degree. Yeah, but the reason, you know, you're, you're not just getting that experience when you're living on a campus. It's, it is the interactions. It is the socialization. It is the residential experience and the chance encounters and the like, right, that, that you're paying for in that bundle of what is college. And if you're not getting that full bundle, I think uh, students and families should be thinking about the price piece of this equation very seriously. Now, the other proactive piece that you should do is if you go down that route, uh, you should make sure that wherever you're attending, uh, those credits might transfer back into your institution uh, before you sort of accumulate a bunch of credits that aren't going to transfer or be very comfortable with, I actually might finish my degree at this online institution uh, and, and, and just be very, like those conversations, there's not a clear answer on them, but mm -hmm. you should have them in your family and be very clear about the sort of the if-thens, if you will. Definitely, that's great advice. And I did 
some work at University of Phoenix online. So I remember a lot of people that transferred credits when they came in and how mm -hmm. important, how much time that saved them. So that's a really good tip. So on this podcast, Michael, we do focus on the social emotional competencies. That's the main part. That's why yep. we call it neuroscience meets SEL. And self-awareness is one of the main ones. Why do you think that a gap year is so important for students that are considering college, but they might be at, their, at the end of high school? Why do you suggest a gap year for them? Yeah, so just taking a step back on this, uh, because I think self-awareness is so important. And the big thing, so when we were doing research for the book, Choosing College, uh, we basically uh, created mini documentaries of over 200 students making the choice uh, to go to school or back to school, as it were, for some of the adults. And uh, in the course of that, we realized that the mo sets of motivations that were spurring them to go was often sort of hidden from their own view. Like they weren't really aware of what the influences and their whys for going. And in particular, a huge number of students were going for reasons just to do what others expected of them or to get away from a bad situation, but not for the intrinsic reason of what the college itself uh, would, 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 would help them do. And when you went for those extrinsic reasons to get away from something or do what someone else expected of you, whether that was your parents, teacher, peers, sort of society writ large, the outcomes were horrendous. 74% uh, of, of students dropping out and transferring if you went to do what was expected of you, for example. And the, the big aha we had was that students really in high school are not, uh, they do not have the time, space, and activities to learn about who they are, to learn about what are, what are the passions that I want to build? How do I want to contribute to the world? How can I contribute to the world? What's my purpose? And that can be an erudite term for a 17 or 18 year old, but, but you know, appropriate for that age span. What are the potential pathways? What are the careers out there? One of the other things we, we, we've seen is that uh, it's the, before the pandemic, <laughs> it was the lowest teen participation rate in the workforce in our nation's history both in summer and year round. So teens weren't even like working and letting and, and understanding what a job meant, let alone what are the different pathways out there and so forth. And so a major conclusion was these students aren't ready to go to college. They don't know what they want out of it. They can't answer the why question. They aren't purposeful in the moment it gets hard and college for everyone will get hard at some point. Mm -hmm. If you don't have that deeper why for being there, drop out. It's the rational decision to make. And so our, our advice was, if you can take an intentional gap year where you bound it with time and, and, and money, it's not going to stretch on for years, mm -hmm. uh, but it's an intentional gap year in which you invest in yourself through a series of experiences, different jobs, apprenticeships, internships, community volunteer experiences. Right now, frankly, in COVID-19, contributing to help with the healthcare challenges that our nation faces, uh, taking a few online courses, a range of activities and reflecting after each one to gain a deeper sense of what do you like and not like? What are your strengths and weaknesses? What, what do you want more of and less of? And clarify that passion and purpose question so that you can then move into an experience of, of more education driven by that understanding and really come in roaring, you know, raring to go and roaring because you're very clear about your intention and that self-awareness is extremely high. And 
the, the statistics are pretty clear that when students come back from a gap year into school, they do better adjusted for all the, you know, the demographic and test and grade data that you can imagine, they do better. The question is, uh, how do we extend that experience to more students um, in a way that makes sure that they then do go back and get more education? And so that, that's become a major thrust of, of, of my interest since the book came out, but, but it was just so clear to us that so many more individuals would benefit from this gap year to learn who they are. Oh, it makes total sense. I think of all the job experiences that I had that say, you know, don't like that job, not going to do that one again. Yeah. And you get it before. So you get, you get this experience beforehand. It just makes complete sense. And it's such a big jump, I think, from high school um, I just remember myself thinking, well, I'm just going to do what I think I'm supposed to do, but I don't really know. That's not a, a great decision making strategy. Why I'm going, why did I choose the university that I did? And it was because that's what I think I'm supposed to do. Yeah. I, and look, I mean, so many do that, right. And, and they can identify it in themselves, right. As well, because you just sort of blindly following it. And it's not that you, maybe if you completed and did well, and you'd say you didn't appreciate the experience in retrospect, but so many three quarters again of students did not have that outcome. And I think there's a way to avoid it by building that intentionality. Now, the other thing I would say is like, I think educators could do a much better job in high school and, and, and middle school as well of building these opportunities and pathways for students to learn what's out there and learn about themselves and build that self-awareness as well. I think, uh, you know, if, if there's a missing part of the book, I think it's that, which is that there's this whole redesign opportunity for our K-12 schools uh, to build that in students as well. Absolutely. Well, is there anything that you think we've missed, Michael, that is important to this topic, do you think? Yeah, it, no, it, it's, a, it's, yeah, I, pre, I appreciate you asking the open-ended question. I, I, I think, and it goes to some of the questions that you're thinking about more broadly in terms of character and habits of success and social-emotional development, which is, in addition to self-awareness, uh, as you go out on a gap year type experience, or you build intentionality, you also build a lot of executive function skills um, and ability to goal set, uh, to plan for how to reach that goal, and then to step back afterwards and reflect and figure out you know, the, the more of less of question, if you will, right? And so really intentionally having mentors and baking that in, in, in a way that is equitable and everyone gets that experience, I think is so important. And I've been so, for, for those that are not aware, I've been so struck by how many curated gap year programs with this very charge have arisen uh, in recent years, Global Citizen Year, Year On, uh, uh, Kaplan's Boost Year. There's, there's a, so many of these that have risen up. And so th there really is a lot of uh, opportunity now to invest in this. And not just during COVID, I think in, in, in ordinary times as well. And it doesn't just mean sort of travel abroad and backpack around Europe aimlessly, right? It's, it's deep intention. And it's a huge opportunity, I think. I think it's a smart strategy. I, I love it. And I wish that I had done that. I would have saved some time for sure. Well, Michael, I want to thank you so much for the time that you've taken to be on this podcast and share your vision for education in these times. If people want to learn more about you, they can go to michaelbhorn.com and follow you on Twitter at Michael B. Horn, or just find you on LinkedIn. You're all over the place and you can read your stuff. And thank you so much for sharing your vision. I appreciate your time.
Well, thank you so much for hosting this important conversation uh, through now, what was it, 76 podcasts you said you've done so far? That's incredible. Yeah, thank you. You're number 76. My vision was 100. I really just started this whole thing just, you know, for for a whim, and I had no idea it was going to become this exciting. Well, that's awesome. Thanks so much. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.